everybody welcome back to witch fix today we're looking at something that is incredibly nostalgic to me it's a book that i read when i was a teenager like a very young teenager like i would say this is more like a tween series but it's distinct to some of the other ones that i've looked at that are aimed at teenagers because this isn't really a kind of witchy girly story it's more of a horror novel uh, and i thought that was kind of worth looking at this is the whitby witches first in the whitby witches trilogy which includes also a warlock in whitby and the whitby child which i may or may not look at drop a like on this version on youtube if you'd like me to read those because at the moment i don't really have any plans to but this is the first one and i remember reading this as a teenager if uh you were sort of like my generation at school god i feel old saying that um there used to be like in the library these like comic books which were like really big font retellings of stories like dracula and frankenstein and they had these massive like a4 pictures in them like really grisly gothic um images and if you were one of the people trying to fight to get one or two of those out of the library every time you're allowed to get books out of the library you probably also read these they have these great big gothic scary illustrations on the front which are incredibly detailed this one has like a, a scary dog with bright red eyes and uh, the just overall the stories contain a lot of stuff that is very grim and grisly uh, so I'm going to trigger warn for, for some of that stuff I mentioned in the series of um, death in childbirth, rape, suicide, bereavement. Um, I think that's about it. But th there's quite a lot of stuff touched on in these. So the blurb for this one is thusly. Shunted between foster homes since the death of their parents, Janet and Ben make a new start in Whitby. But Ben sees things and people that others cannot. He soon realises that Alice Boston, their guardian, is not quite as she seems. And is the Bargeist, the black hands said to stalk the darkened streets, really just an old legend? Then Ben befriends the doomed fisher folk and learns of his inextricable role in their dreadful fate. So, you might be thinking, well, where the witches come in? The, the witches are actually kind of central to the story in this one, but they're not really mentioned in the blurb. So, the story is about Ben and Janet, but it's told in a kind of omni omnipotent third person narration kind of style which you don't see a lot of now it feels very dated at this point uh, because like none of the stuff i read is told like this but essentially we're from an outside perspective and occasionally kind of jump towards a character so it'll be like janet was feeling this way and then you know you'll go into the heads of even some of the the antagonists and know sort of what they're thinking in any given moment and so I can't really say that it has like a main character, but the story does focus on Ben and Janet's arrival and the things that they experience, although often we slip out of their point of view and find out about other things before they do. Now, Ben is described as having the sight, which means that he sees ghosts, uh, which has led to them being bounced from foster home to foster home because he keeps upsetting people. But he can also see the fisher folk who are a, a fantastical race invented for this series uh, they're like little goblin-y gnome people who live around the shores of whitby uh, and they are cursed as a people they can no longer have children they will die in childbirth because one of them decades and centuries past um, married uh, a human and had children with him and that displeased the lords of the deep who are like the gods of the sea in a very kind of lovecraftian sense so now they're all cursed and ben meets and kind of 
makes friends with the youngest member of their group, who's still like 900 years old, called Nelda. They're adopted, I guess, aunt, because that's how they refer to her as Aunt Alice, but basically their foster parent, Aunt Alice, is a witch, essentially, although she says she prefers the term wise woman. She's this very kind of stern older lady in a green cape who marches around setting the world to rights in Whitby and she has her own ladies circle which gathers for seances. The ladies circle are made up of some Roald Dahl-esque caricatures of human beings. You've got the lady who's obsessed with cats, you've got the the fat rich lady, you've got the kind of nervy post-mistress woman, I feel like she might be the cat woman as well, I forget. But they're all very set in their one kind of aspect. So you've got those characters. And then you've got Rowena Cooper, who is another new arrival to the area. And the Whitby witch, I guess you could say, uh, is an evil witch. And we'll come back to what I think about that in a moment. But she is there essentially to get the same thing that the Alfwaders are after, which is the fabled moon kelp, which grants wishes if you find it so it sort of becomes a race against time to find this thing before Rowena does we get to find out a little bit about who Rowena actually is why she's there under an assumed name and some grisly murders take place so it's a great book for children um in all seriousness I did really love this book when I was uh, a teenager I think it benefited enormously from being an audiobook when I listened to it I know I've read the actual books because I used to own them but I did I think have more of a memory of them as audiobooks and I think something about the voice acting really brings these things to life and I was kind of disappointed in rereading it because I found that the way it's narrated was quite distancing and that although there were the cool moments that I remembered that they were kind of bogged down in this very be home by tea time let's eat kippers style famous five-ish narrative uh, so that was a little bit disappointing but some of the things i did really enjoy in this although one of the scenes that i remembered i think is in a warlock in whitby and i really liked that moment so uh, i might have to go and read that one i i just might need to <laughs> so the witches in this story aren't really similar to what i would think of as like modern pagans in any sense. Uh, the author says that he was inspired by Whitby itself and its history. That really comes through in the book. You've got like a lot of local myths and legends. You visit a lot of local landmarks and museums and a lot of local history is brought in in a climactic scene in which uh, Whitby shifts back and forwards through time. So it, it's almost like overrun with history. But I would not say that a real understanding of witchcraft is something that is brought in. What I will say is that it has a very Christian moralistic view towards witchcraft. Allow me to explain. Um, so you've got on one side Alice Boston, who is this older lady. She tells a lot of stories about St Hilda, um, who drove out the pagans and various other things, kind of similar to St Patrick in, in terms of the mythology expressed in this book. Um, and the way that she kind of was taken in to Christianity and became a saint. And then on the flip side, you've got Rowena, who has dark powers, who is more reminiscent of a pagan time, scorns St Hilda and her acceptance of Christianity and regards it as weakness. And she's a bad person. So basically, 
if you call yourself a witch and use magic and think that that's great, you're a bad person. Whereas if you are a character who kind of skirts the edges of like more sort of Christian spiritualism with seances and stuff, and you don't actually do like spells and things, you're a good person. Uh, which is not something that I'm really on board with, but there were some interesting ideas along with this, and one of these is on page 19. Uh, it's sort of Ben's first look at Miss Boston's house, and it is kind of interesting because it sounded like he was describing my own altar. So here we go. It was a funny house. There were lots of weird prints on the walls and old sepia photographs of Victorian Whitby. There were also a good many corn dollies hanging up all over the place, a table in the hall was reserved for things Miss Boston had found while out walking. Pine cones, bright orange rose hips, a bunch of heather, sheep's wool found from a hedge, complete with twigs and fragments of leaf, the broken shell of a blackbird's egg, several interesting pebbles, a gnarled piece of driftwood, and a white gull's feather. So I found that quite interesting because it kind of tells of this preoccupation with the natural world. She does like to go out on walks. She does them every day and climbs up the steps of Whitby, like 199 steps, um, to keep herself young and vital, despite the fact that she's like in her 90s. And I think that's maybe part of her magic, is that she appears to be at least 20 years younger than she really is. Um, but yeah, it's very grounded in this kind of natural thing. The seance is not seen as being overly magical they just plug in like a red bulb and sit in a circle and try and call forth spirits there's no like ritual elements nothing that would seem i know scary or off-putting uh to a reader uh who was more comfortable with like more christian things uh, so i found that quite interesting and then we have on page 77 uh jenna gets annoyed because she finds them mid-seance and calls miss boston a witch and as a sort of parting blow, having been accused of being a witch and having her ladies' circle called a coven, Miss um, Boston says, Oh, and by the way, she added, you need 13 for a coven, and I prefer the term wise woman. Good night, dear. Um, which is kind of putting Janet in her place a little bit, showing her that she doesn't know everything, but it's also the fact that she refuses to be known as a witch with a coven. She's a wise woman with a ladies' circle, and how much more palatable are those terms than, than the loaded word of witch, uh, which I found quite interesting. On page 50, we get a little bit of the St Hilda's myth, uh, the legend of the Ammonites. So she says, In the olden times, when Kedman was alive, the abbess of Whitby was the niece of a great northern king. They were dark, severe days, and most of the people were still pagan, worshipping cruel gods on the moors and at the river mouth. So we've got this, I so we've got this idea that pagans were somehow more primitive that they worshipped these cruel gods and if you've ever read any of the bible when i went to church school a surprising number of those stories sound quite cruel you know like go up this mountain and kill your son turning people into pillars of salt drowning the entire world you know things like that don't sound all nicey nicey but the book kind of skirts over that and doesn't really acknowledge this odd um, dissonance but there we go uh, and then in uh, later on in that same page it says it said that the cliff top where the abbey now stands was alive with snakes they were such a nuisance that the lady hilda took up a whip or staff and drove them all into the sea where by her prayers they were turned to stone 
However, the three largest serpents had escaped her anger and they rose out of the grass to strike her. Furiously, she hit out first and cut their heads clean off while their bodies sailed through the air and were embedded in the wall of a house at the bottom of the 199 steps. They are still there to this day, if you care to look. And then uh, the children ask her if this is actually true. And uh, like she goes on to explain, uh, Edwin of Northumbria was her uncle, though some say father. She was a princess in any case. Word got around that one of royal blood was coming to Whitby, and gossip confused the true facts, rather like Chinese whispers, I imagine. Eventually, half the population believed Hilda was a great sorceress, but we actually know very little about the real woman. The story of the snakes is obviously allegorical, the serpents representing the pagan religion which Hilda overcame. Uh, so from that, we actually get quite a lot of lore which is relevant to the book. One of the things that Rowena, the evil witch, is after is Hilda's staff, which she used to get rid of the snakes. And... I made the mistake of putting something on Facebook Marketplace before I started recording this, and now I'm getting a lot of messages. I need to put some more pillows on my phone. But uh, Rowena is after this staff because she says that Hilda was too weak to wield it, and that's why she went to Christianity. And Alice Boston corrects her and says that she feared its power because she could not control it, and so she hid it away because it could not be destroyed. These sort of two sides of the story, but there is a very heavy focus on the fact that Christians are the ones who are good and wise and know the good magic, and then everyone else is bad and evil and hearkening back to dark days. We hear about um, a nun who's actually a sort of mythical creature in disguise as a nun, but she's one of the good guys, and Rowena's history in that she and her husband, who is not present in this book and who she is apparently actively trying to escape, um, were in Africa and they got the locals involved in some sort of ceremony which left all of them terrified that they had seen this giant dog um, and that they had been used in this like conjuration. Uh, so it, it kind of ties that idea of like pagan magic and evil magic into Africa um, which is a very colonial perspective uh, and not terribly enlightened but it, it is what it is. So although I feel like the book is quite dated, it does still have some really good gothic horror moments. This giant dog appears throughout the novel and chases people to their deaths. They try and escape down 199 steps, wreathed in fog, running from this terrible ghostly beast, and then they are torn down. People are killed. There's a hand of glory that is used, like a, a severed hand of a, of a person, which is used in a burglary. All this sort of creepy and weird stuff, which it kind of sounds like a, a really good episode of Midsummer Murders. Um... But it, it was really attractive to me as a child because I hadn't really read any horror up until that point. Uh, everything was sort of Jacqueline Wilson books and, and then this was like horror focused on, on children. Um, I do remember that there's more magic and stuff in later books because Rowena's husband Nathaniel Crozier um, does make an appearance uh, in I think The Warlock of Whitby. So there is more magic and stuff in the series. It is kind of a limited series in terms of what it says about witchcraft. It's quite um, a moralistic view, as I've said. But I think there's some things that can be learned from that, not being consumed with a search for power being one of them. And 
I kind of like Rowena as a character because she's just so unapologetically evil. Uh, I think if this was a movie, she would be like chewing on the scenery. Evil. It's just great. She's practically a Disney villain. Uh, so there's that. Uh, I do like advise people like take a look at it if you can get the audiobook. I don't know if it's on Audible, but you know that's a pretty good listen. I like listening to children uh, children's books on audiobook because they're just easier to keep track of when you're not like physically reading because I, I find that difficult. Uh, but let me do know if you if you give it a look if you were a fan of this series when it was originally out if you're old like me and uh, in the meantime don't forget to recommend any books that you'd like to see me take a look at and I'll see you in the next one bye